0: Well, this morning in the lobby at the hotel, I walked through for just a minute, and there were several televisions set up around the room with clusters of people gathered around each one of them, looking at maps on the screen with swirling red images moving across the Gulf of Mexico. Hurricane Nate is preparing to make landfall. A familiar scene, isn't it? And you feel like for the past several weeks we've all been fixed on these weather patterns and we've become experts on tropical storms and classification of hurricanes and we've studied these tracking maps and waited for monster storms like Nate to make landfall. We kind of know the routine, don't we? And even now, this morning, thousands of people find themselves quickly preparing their homes for the onslaught. Windows are being covered. Loose objects are being removed from yards. Roofs are being carefully examined for potential weaknesses. Foundations are being reinforced. People know that anything not firmly and securely grounded will likely be swept away in this coming storm. So, and then many of them will drive off, praying that their homes will withstand this coming onslaught. Then they will spend hours and sometimes days waiting for news. How intense will the hurricane be when it hits? Had their preparations been adequate? And the wait can sometimes be excruciating, can't it? I wonder if perhaps Paul had a similar feeling as he waited for news from Titus. Titus and Paul had developed a close relationship over their years in ministry together. Titus was converted under Paul's teaching, and don't you love the way that Paul opened this letter to Titus? Paul, who was once known as a Pharisee of Pharisees, referred to Titus, who Was an uncircumcised Gentile as my true child in the common faith. Isn't that beautiful? These two men had been through a lot together. Titus served as a sort of test case on the church's acceptance of Gentile believers when he decided not to be circumcised. And then Paul relied on Titus for some of his most difficult missions. Titus delivered a really hard letter to the Corinthian believers from Paul. And then he was responsible for reporting back to Paul and how it had gone. And we know from 2 Timothy that this partnership actually continued until the end of Paul's life. So these men who walked together through deep waters in ministry loved each other dearly. And now... Paul is writing to Titus on the island of Crete. Now, the first mention of the gospel reaching Crete was at Pentecost, when the Cretans are listed among those who were amazed to hear the disciples telling about God's mighty works in their own Cretan language. Scholars believe that after Paul's third missionary journey, he and Titus traveled to the island of Crete. And when they first arrived... The good news had not yet penetrated the island. So they found themselves in a dark world. And we, we read that, or we saw that, even as Millie read, Cretans were known. They were known for their laziness, their dishonesty. They were known for their covetousness and their sensuality. But then God clearly worked among the people on the island of Crete as Paul and Titus shared the good news of salvation through Jesus. Hearts and lives were transformed, and pretty soon, churches began to spring up around the island. But having never witnessed a model for Christian living, how would these new believers know what a Christian life should look like? Everything about Christianity was new to them, And the stakes were so high. So Paul left Titus there in Crete to help them get established. To help them learn how to live as faithful followers of Jesus. And I'm sure that Paul did everything he could before he left that island to ground them in the treasure of Scriptures. He knew the hurricane-force winds of culture would rattle and buffet these new believers. And unless this new community was firmly grounded in the truths of God's word, they would never survive the coming onslaught. And so now, as he pens this letter to his dear friend Titus, Paul is giving specific instructions for the churches in Crete. He's hoping that Titus will sometime soon join him again. And so these are instructions are designed to help get this community set so that after Titus was gone, they would be able to continue as faithful followers of Jesus. That's Paul's goal. He's seeking to establish a community grounded in the teaching of God's word, where relationships and actions naturally flow out of an understanding of who God is. So please keep your Bibles open, if you will, to the book of Titus. We're going to zero in on in those instructions in chapter 2. But first, it's helpful to look at the letter as a whole. Now, many many of the books in the Bible open with a kind of a hint of what the author is hoping to communicate. They give us a kind of an opening summary in the first few verses, almost like an overture in a symphony where we hear snippets of melodies that will then be more fully developed as the music progresses. So right away in the opening verse of Titus we get a glimpse into what's on Paul's mind as he writes this letter. Even the way that Paul introduces himself. He's once he's noting that he's a servant and an apostle. Servant is going to refer to his actions and an apostle points to the teaching of Jesus because what he wants to do is he wants to set he wants Titus to set up this young community in such a way that every person in this church has access to solid teaching from God's word so that they will find themselves looking more and more like Jesus. Look at that first 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 verse. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And then he goes on. But as Paul penned this letter to Titus, what he's doing is he's connecting a believer's knowledge of the truth and his life. So as true believers learn more and more about who God is, that information, that knowledge, will necessarily impact the way they live. They will be transformed to look more and more like Jesus. So he's, kind of, he's laying out this plan for faithfully teaching God's word. If this is, you kind of think of this as the no-believer-left-behind program. <laughs> but in order for these truths to be faithfully communicated, the church needed faithful people to share these truths? Isn't that always the case? We tend to evaluate messengers or messages based on the messenger. If a politician who has been convicted of bribery starts talking about the importance of financial accountability, we're likely to roll our eyes and dismiss his words. How much more important is the character of someone who's sharing the very words of God? So as Paul lays out this blueprint for grounding the truths of the church, grounding the church, he's establishing both the importance of the sound message as well as the sound character of the messenger. We're going to talk about the message later on today, but but before someone can hear what we say, they need to know something about who we are. Brian Chappell has written about the importance of godly character in the lives of those who are teaching. Listen to his words. True character cannot be hidden, although it can be temporarily masked. Character oozes out of us in our messages. Just as people reveal themselves in conversations by their words and mannerisms, we constantly reveal ourselves to others in our teaching. Over time, our word choices, topics, examples, and tone unveil our hearts, regardless of how well we think we have cordoned off deeper truths from a public display. So Paul is concerned about the character of of those who are going to teach within the church. And he begins, we notice, with those instructions regarding elders in verses 5 to 9. And you'll see that he outlines specific character traits that are necessary for an elder. And then in verse 9, Paul writes, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The elders are responsible to teach sound doctrine and to protect the the church from false doctrine. But in order for an elder's words to be accepted, his life needs to reflect the God that he is serving. Never perfectly, but in such a way that his life and his teaching point to the same truths. Now, these church leaders were going to need to be really well-grounded because they already had work cut out for them. Dangerous teachers had already found their way into the church. And so in verse 16, we see a summary of their work. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So their mouths say that they're believers, but their lives say they're a sham. So once again, we see Paul connecting teaching and actions. So that is a lot of context, but it's super helpful to understand Paul's purposes as we look at his instructions for women. So let's look again at those verses in chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So as Paul lays out this blueprint for church ministry, he has specific instructions for every group. There are similarities among the demographics, but each group has some different applications. And don't you just love the fact that women are included in these instructions? That was a really radical concept in the first century. And as women... Now, who are involved in ministry within our churches, we need to understand these specific instructions to us. What does it mean to live as a faithful daughter of the king? Well, just as he did with his instructions to the elders, Paul began his instructions to women by addressing our character. And compared to the list for elders and older men, it might appear at first glance that... We've gotten off pretty easy. Older women are to be reverent, to watch their tongues. Excessive partiers, uncontrolled gossips, and drunkards are disqualified. So let's just take a minute and look at the characteristics that Paul has laid out here. Older women are to be reverent. Now, I don't know what image it is that comes to your mind when you think of a reverent woman. I sometimes think of a woman from another tradition quietly sitting in a pew wearing a very simple calico dress with a head covering whose voice is never raised above a whisper. <laughs> All right. Reverence, and reverence might manifest itself in that woman sitting in that pew. But reverence also might look like a woman in shorts and a t-shirt, falling on her knees, crying out to God for someone that she loves. Or a woman who is facing a horrible injustice, laying out her case before the Lord and choosing to trust him in the midst of the darkness. Because reverence ultimately is a byproduct of something much bigger than the volume of our voices or the clothes that we're wearing. Reverence is very closely associated with respect or awe, and it springs from a healthy relationship with God. A relationship where we spend time with Him, seeking Him. Learning about his character, contemplating his omniscience and his omnipotence, thinking and praying and thanking him for his mercy, learning what he loves and what he hates, and then examining our own lives in light of that. When we find ourselves awed by his holiness, And humbled by our own sin we're overwhelmed by his grace and mercy and we learn to rest in his sovereignty our relationship with him grows as we study his word and as we respond in prayer and obedience and so sisters as we prepare to minister to others we desperately need God's word in our own lives not just to study for what we're going to teach other women, but we need to study to know God ourselves and to have our own lives transformed by his word. And prayer is not just a quick add-on at the end of our Bible study. Think about this. We have the privilege of enjoying a relationship with the God of the universe the God who sacrificed his son so that we can approach his holy throne and call that God our father, that blows my mind. I hope you have someone in your life, an older woman, who has modeled this kind of reverence. If you do, you understand the impact this can have. I think of Barbara Hughes, who is the wife of a former pastor, whose love for Jesus oozes out of every pore in her body. Her quiet confidence in the Lord has served as an anchor through monster storms in her life. She is a great teacher. But as a younger woman, I learned probably more from watching her life than I did from hearing her teach. Barbara's reverence for the Lord and the reverence that Paul is describing here in Titus 2 reflects years of faithfully studying God's word. It's an outgrowth of a heart that has been marked by an understanding of who God is, his holiness and his justice, and a heart that understands the depth of the wickedness that's inherent in each one of us and our desperate position before him. This is a heart that has contemplated the love that was poured out at the cross where Jesus took our punishment. Reverence is so foundational. As we teach, our lives will communicate volumes about our God. Without a clear picture of God and of ourselves, our messages will be muted. So friends, before we begin to teach others, we need to ask ourselves a few questions. How is my own relationship with God? It's so easy in ministry to become so busy caring for the needs, teaching others, that our own lives can fall through the cracks. Am I spending time in his presence? Am I praying, digesting his word and letting it shape me and mold me? Am I different now than I was a year ago? Our reverence will deepen in relation to our understanding of him. I'm sure you are all familiar with that scene in the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy returned to Narnia and saw Aslan. Aslan! You're bigger. That is because you are older, little one. Not because you are. I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. So we need to ask ourselves, does our God look bigger than he did a year ago? Are our lives marked by this kind of reverence? Well, older women are also instructed not to slander. Our growing relationship with the Lord will impact the way that we see others. Matthew records a conversation between Jesus and his disciples after he had been challenged about the ritual of hand-washing. And listen to his response in Matthew 15. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Sisters, our words are a reflection of our hearts. And let me just say, it is not hard to find faults with our brothers and sisters, if that's our goal. But in order to faithfully serve in our role as older women, teaching our sisters about the truths of God's word, we have to guard our tongues. Slander can be lethal. A single critical or judgmental comment spoken at the wrong time can destroy our ability to ever ever share God's word with a younger woman. All it takes is one time and she may never listen again. But that doesn't mean we don't address areas of weakness, but our words need to be rooted in God's word, humbly and filled with love as we point them to his truth and doing it in a biblically sound way. Underneath slander, Hides that terrible sin of pride. And when we grasp our own position before our holy God, our words will be marked with more humility. Once again, women see far deeper than just the words we're speaking. Is it our desire to see our sisters grow in their walk with the Lord? Is that what's really driving our words? Are the words we speak just opinions, or are they grounded in God's word? Are we standing back in judgment, or do our hearts overflow with a sincere love for our sisters, wanting her to grow in her knowledge and understanding of who God is? Our words will reflect the reality of our hearts. And that brings us to the final characteristic that Paul highlights for older women. Older women are called to be sober. Now, don't you just kind of think, seriously, Paul? You have to tell them that? (laughs) I mean, what kind of women are these? Are you seriously entrusting the teaching of God's word to potential drunkards? Women who struggle with self-control to that degree. Who are tempted to allow something like alcohol to gain such a strong hold on their hearts. Well, when they were quiet and had a few minutes to themselves, apparently the women of Crete were tempted to have a drink. And then one more. And then before they knew it, what was once a simple pleasure had taken control of them. Friends, when we share God's word with others, we're asking them to trust his word above every other voice they will ever hear. We're asking them to entrust their eternal destiny. Think about that. The most important things in life. We're asking them to entrust their very soul to the God who stands behind these words. How can we effectively share God's word with others if we're distracted by another passion? if he's not our first love, if we have a deeper passion. Our God wants our whole hearts. Throughout scripture, we hear those words over and over. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. None of us loves the Lord the way we should. And thankfully, Jesus has gone before us. But he's given us a new heart where we can grow in our love for him. Is our love for him growing? What draws us in? What is it that motivates us? There are a lot of things in life crying out for our love and devotion. In this letter to Titus, Paul is challenging us to examine our hearts. What are we passionate about it may be alcohol more likely it's something like social media or fitness or pursuing financial security whatever that might mean so we need to ask ourselves when we finally find a few minutes to ourselves where do our minds go Do we instantly reach for our phones to check the latest posts on social media to see how we measure up? Do we check our bank balance? Do we run out to another fitness class? None of those things is inherently bad, but we know, don't we, when the balance has tipped and suddenly we sense that that pull is stronger than it should be? What if instead... Our deepest desire was to use that brief moment to pray for our sister who's struggling as she cares for her parents and ask the Lord to just give her the strength she needs today. Our God desires our whole hearts. So friends, before we we are called to teach our sisters, but before we begin, we need to spend time looking in the mirror. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. God has given us these specific instructions. We are called to teach. But before we open our mouths to share those amazing truths from God's Word, we need to examine our own hearts. Our lives are shouting loudly. Do our lives shout the gospel? The gospel that we sang about just a few minutes ago? That we've seen the horror of our sin and trusted in Jesus alone for our salvation? Do our attitudes reflect a growing relationship with our Savior? Do our words reflect a love, a deep, deep love for our brothers and sisters? What do our passions shout? Do they shout to the world that Jesus is truly my Lord? As daughters of the King, are we representing our Father well? Our ability to teach will necessarily be impacted by our lives. We have the amazing privilege of representing our Father to our sisters in Christ. May our words and our lives teach them that God is truly who he claims to be, one who is worthy of our very deepest affections.